What's up, Hyperfast Nation? On this episode of the Hyperfast Wealth Show, I sat down with a real estate developer who has over 20 years of total experience, some of that in multifamily and the last 10 years, over 10 years actually, in self-storage. Welcome to the show, Scott Crone. Welcome to the show today, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing real well. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, well, I, I love the uh, the jacket. I know only the YouTube uh, watchers can see it. The podcast listeners can't see it, but uh, makes makes this meeting uh, a little bit more fun, I'll say. <laughs> we got it for our new brand. So uh, one-stop self-storage and our company color is red. So we figured better get something to resemble our company. So one-stop self-storage. Uh, why? Why the brand? What's what's changed? What's what's new? What's different? What's what's the direction you're going with it? Well, originally, you know, we're, we are developers. So our background is in real estate development and design build. My, you know, I was trained to have a master's in architecture, so that was really the focus of our company. At that point in time, we thought we could hand it off to a, a REIT to manage our facilities. And we were just not very pleased with the performance of the REIT during the last six to nine months. And so we were, we were looking at our costs increasing, you know, 40, 45% monthly and uh, the conversion rate incredibly low. So we felt that it was time for us to launch our own brand and uh, take the management in-house. And, and since that period of time, we've been outperforming the REITs. And so, you know, that was the main impetus of why we made our choice. Well, I'm, I'm excited to dig into that, but I'd, I'd like to, Dig into your background a little first. So you mentioned the master's in architect. How did how did you go from that to you know then ended up doing doing self storage? I'm, I'm sure not everyone goes in, into architect school thinking they'll they'll get into self storage. <laughs> no, it's it's not one of the design classes that we, <laughs> let's just say. Um, my background was in multifamily, and um, my professor owned a real estate development company and also an architecture and contracting firm. And so, you know, during class, I'd be working on his actual projects. And then as his TA, I'd go into his office and work for him. And then I was running all the financial and modeling. So I was really, my background other, before we're getting my master's in architecture was I went to a liberal arts school. So I was one of the few people that could read and write proficiently. Everybody else in uh, my class was just strictly architecture. So they, they didn't really like reading. So that's why I got thrown onto the development side. And because of that, I got exposed to development and beyond just architecture. And so when I started my own company after working for him for six years, um, we were de developing and also doing design build. And we started that in 1998 and it went all the way until um, 2008 and when the big crash came. And then obviously everything in multi single family, multifamily, anything residential was completely come to a stop with the exception of multifamily. So we started looking at commercial properties and then I had a client ask me to identify and find for them a distressed self-storage facility. And I couldn't find one for like two years. And I said to him, you know, if you really want to get into this development's the way. And so 
that's how we began looking to get into development of self-storage facilities. So the back, so just to walk back a little bit, you were at graduate school or undergrad you, and you, you were, had a TA job and that's, that's kind of how you got turned on to development. You, you saw the, the numbers and I'm guessing they looked attractive to you. Yeah, it was graduate school. My undergraduate was in okay. history and I just made a transition to uh, architecture in graduate school. And um, my professor would always bring a, a real project to the table for us, the students to work on. And he would develop the concept in class and then he'd be implementing it in, in, in real life. And so as the TA, <clears throat> that's where I got the best of both worlds because one, he picked my plan out of all the other students to work on. It was a 400 unit development, $100 million project. And when I wasn't in class, I'd be working for him in the office. And that's where I was doing all the financial modeling of this hundred unit or hundred million dollar project. So, you know, breaking it down per building, per unit type, per, you know, coming up with all the financials, all the sales prices, change orders, all those things for um, the multifamily. And that's where I really learned the development side of things working for him for six years. So that got you into development. And then really it was your, your friend's search for self-storage uh, several years later after the residential market took a hit that, that's that was the impetus that got you into self-storage is that absolutely my track that? yep so um at that point in time i was you know for me building self-storage is a very simplistic model of multifamily. i can lay it out very similarly but obviously i don't it's for me it's multifamily without toilets and sinks and kitchens so it's just a much more simplistic model of multifamily. um to me it's the ultimate simplistic model of multifamily. But we have a, a lot greater flexibility, um, a lot less risk, and a lot more variety that we, which we can do. We can change unit configurations a lot easier than what we could with multifamily. How do the numbers compare? Like cash on cash returns, cap rates, uh, are they similar or better than multifamily? The cap rates are. I'm going to say right now. I mean, multifamily is very aggressive. You're you know you're seeing in three and four for class A facilities and. We've seen some cap compression down to about that low as a whole, like when um, Extra Space or Blackstone got into the market, they were paying three and a half fours for their portfolio, but that was like a billion dollars worth of assets. Um, but for the most part, you're, you're seeing things in the five to six to seven range um, for class A and class B between eight and nine cap. Um, but in terms of, if, if I'm looking at, you know, it's 400 units, $100 million project. You know, I can build 800 units and my total cost is under $10 million, well under $10 million. So the fact that I can do that is a fraction of the cost and our operational expenses, instead of being at 55%, you know, we're, we're closer to 25, 35% operational expenses. So from a cash flow perspective, proportionally, it's a lot better within um, self-storage than it is multifamily because our expenses are lower. Our two greatest expenses are real estate taxes and um, salesperson. And then is, is there... And then on the, I guess on the expense side, then I've got another question on the risk, but on the expense, you mentioned the salesperson. Do, have you looked into automating some of that? I know some, some of the facilities right now, you know, they're, you, you pretty much either do it on the phone or internet or a kiosk that you drive up to, to, you know, you don't, you don't even have to like talk to a salesperson. It is going that direction. I mean, a lot of, especially during COVID, a lot of the reservations were taking uh, through the internet, signing documents all over, all over the internet, those sorts of things. 
Um, but when you're getting into a class A facility, when, you know, a thousand units or 800 units, um, there is, you still need someone on site, especially, you know, if it's a, not a drive up facility, but like literally a walk-in. So making sure the place is clean, making sure that it's, you know, people aren't living in there, those sorts of things. But, you know, instead of having two or three people, it's, you know, typically have like one person on site, you know, during, during work hours, just to help people find the locations if they upsell them, you know, if they think they want to come in for an economical unit, but then they see that they can get a, you know, for a little bit more, they get a better location. You know, there are those advantages for having someone on site. And then on the risk side, uh, why, why is it less risky? I know one, one thing jumps out to me is you don't, you don't have tenant uh, eviction moratoriums and, and that kind of thing to deal with, but just in general, what, what, what are the risk factors that you, you don't have to deal with? Uh, I'd say a lot of different things. One, it's a very um, predictable and business model that can be uh, performed out in terms of you can see the actual performance of it. And it is something that you can model very accurately and because of spending habits and buying power. So if you understand the local demographics, you can predict what the modeling should be. Um, so that's one less. When we were doing speculative developments and multifamily, it was you know, sort of the field of dreams approach, like mm. build it and they will come with us. We know how much <clears throat> supply and demand is in the marketplace and what needs to be filled. And so we can predict that a lot more accurately. So that, that brings down the risk. Um, the second thing is, for instance, we had 10 by 10s that weren't selling, but our 10 by 20s were. So we took down the interior wall of a bunch of 10 by 10s and screwed it to the side panel of one of the 10 by 20s. And all of a sudden we had more 10 by 20s and those leased up. So we, you know, that's not something I could change with multifamily is, you know, how do you change a, a one bedroom into a two bedroom or a two bedroom into a three bedroom is, you know, you can, there's only so much you can do there. So there's a lot more flexibility when, if you need to modify the product and we don't need permits to do that. And it's just a matter of literally taking off a wall and putting it in, you know, and saving it. So that, that also reduces the risk. And then, um, dollar spent, you know, if I'm, if I'm spending like 10% of what my competition is doing then, or within the other marketplace, then I, I don't have as much capital at risk. And so therefore I have less exposure in the marketplace. Hey, hold that thought. Do you want to get a hundred tips for free from my best selling real estate book, the hyper local, hyper fast real estate agent? If you do go to hyperfasttips.com and you can download a hundred of my best tips today. Again, that's hyperfasttips.com. You can download a hundred tips on how to grow your business, get more clients, deliver more value to more people. Go to hyperfasttips.com. How do you decide which markets you're gonna go into and like what locations in those markets? How does, how does that process work for you guys? Well, we, we, you know, generally speaking, if you look at the, the coasts in the South, um, they're oversaturated. And so the typical level of saturation for self-storage is seven square feet of lockers per capita. And if you look at those areas, especially like Florida, they're building new construction where the saturation level is 11, much higher level than what we would enter into. Um, all the facilities that we have done have been under four. And so when we go into a marketplace, we want to make sure that the saturation rate is low. Um, and so when we identify a building or facility, then we'll run the demographics for that one, three and five mile radius to determine how much 
product is in the marketplace. Like we ran one today and within one mile, the saturation level was 54 square feet of lockers per capita. So significantly higher than the marketplace. Um, in the five mile, it got down to eight, um, eight units of square feet of lockers per, per capita. But that was an existing facility and they're 100% leased up. So, you know, would we go and expand in that market? Probably not. Could we find better efficiencies in that marketplace? Potentially. And so that's how we evaluate if we're going to acquire that one facility or not. Then you said, I guess, for example, Florida is, is higher than uh, a lot of places, but they're still building there. Is that? Is that yes, it's, it's absolutely crazy. So Florida why, and Texas. Why, yeah, what's, what's, what's driving that? Are people, are people just thinking more developments coming or, or more building in the area, more people moving there? Or is it just all people making a bet? <laughs> I think, I think it's a little bit of people making a bet. Um, the overall population of Florida is not growing. It's, it's actually stagnant um, as opposed to, let's say, Texas or Tennessee or North Carolina. Those are obviously growing populations, but Florida is actually staying the same. So as many people that are going to Florida um, that are either dying or leaving Florida. But I think that you know, the housing stock in Florida is a little bit different. There's not too many. you know, To me, the things that um, impede self-storage are basements, acts, and garages. And if you have those things, then, you know, you can fill those up before you, uh, you know, find the need to go drive someplace to put your stuff in it. Um, so that might be a part of it is that a lot of the housing stock in Florida doesn't really have basements or attics, you know, just because of the type of product that's historically been built in Florida. Right. And the, the rain is, is so frequent. You, you know, most people probably want their garages for the cars or their uh, other toys. Right, uh, or bowed or, or whatever, so that it, yeah, I guess, I guess maybe, maybe they need more uh storage than the average uh northerner, <laughs> perhaps. So, but we haven't done too much in Florida. And what, what, uh, what, what unit size or when you, when you guys do development, is, is it normally what's what's the minimum size usually, number of units? Well, the minimum size of a unit is typically five by five. That's pretty much a standard in the industry. And then you'll go five by seven and a half, five by 10, uh, seven and a half by 10, 10 by 10, 10 by 15, 10 by 20. Um, those are typically the, the average size of units. Um, but when we look for, um, to determine how, what configuration we're gonna be put in, once again, we study the demographics and the, the higher the medium income, the, the clientele is willing to pay a higher price per square foot for larger units. The more economically challenged the community is they're willing to pay a higher price per square foot for smaller units. So on average, the typical size is 90 square feet. You can say, well, a 10 by 10 is hundred. So why would you get 90? Just when you weigh it all out, you balance right. it out, it comes to about 90. But that's with a, a typical demographics. And if the medium income drops, let's say to 40,000 per household, that's when you could see, you know, the medium size of the units drop to 80 or 75 square feet per, per unit. What, what would you recommend as someone who's, who's new to this maybe and, and wants to, to get into self-storage? Maybe they've heard, heard this podcast or others and, and they like the numbers better than multifamily. You know, is, it, is it better for them to buy existing or to find guys like you and, and do new or, or looking to to developing like what's what's the best best way in for someone new 
I think a lot of that has to do with what their goals and objectives are. Um, when someone does come to us and approaches us about partnering up with us or working with us, you know, that's one of the first things we always ask people is what are your goals? Um, what are you trying to accomplish with the investment? And, you know, there's different types of self-storage and we, we've broken them into three classes. Class C um, doesn't mean it's in a bad neighborhood. It could be in a great neighborhood. It could be in a rural neighborhood, but it's typically a smaller mom and pop, um, you know, first generation facility. And we equate that to like a penny stock. And then, you know, a class B would be more closer to the suburban, probably a little bit bigger, over hundred units, up to about 400, maybe climate control. And it even, might even look like a class C facility in terms of a drive up facility, but we consider that more like a blue chip stock. And then class A would be an urban setting, over 400 units, fully climate controlled. Um, and we, we equate that to a growth stock in the sense that you're gonna see both cash flow and appreciation. And so, you know, a lot of our investors are doing it for the tax structure and the tax shelters um, between cost segregation opportunity funds. They're not so much looking necessarily for the growth of their income, but more of sheltering their income from taxes. And so I think a lot of it has to do with what are, what is someone trying to do? Are they trying to create it as a passive investment or are they looking at it as a tax shelter or it's an active business that they want to be a part of? Um, because it is a different real estate play. It is it is real estate, but it's also a retail business. And so you have to understand both components of that. And, um, you know, if someone wants to do it themselves, then I would really suggest a class C facility because of the fact that, um, you know, you're not dealing with a thousand units, you might be dealing with a hundred units. And of those, you know, you only have to deal with 10 people that are either trying to move in or you're or not paying, you have to get rid of them and to get new, new tenants in there. And so, you know, then you can look to see if you want to hire a management company or if it's something that you want to facilitate yourself and how close it is to where you live. What do you, what do you think the long-term outlook is for, for self-storage? Do you, do you think Americans are going to need more of it or less of it as, as we go forward as, you know, over time? Right now, only 10% of the population utilizes self-storage and it's, it's, growing to close to a hundred billion dollar industry. Hmm. Um, so, you know, in the areas where land is, you know, becoming more and more expensive and cost of housing is increasing and increasing, then the more likely that self-storage will remain. Um, to, you know, we've had this conversation with many municipalities in terms of whether it's a viable or needed product within the marketplace. And, you know, it's hard to argue that a billion, a hundred billion dollar industry is not needed in the marketplace, especially when people are downsizing, trying to reduce their, you know, their, the cost of their housing. Um, it's an, it's a viable option for people, but the main driving catalysts are, are change. You know, there's death, there divorce, displacement, or dislocation. Those are the main reasons why people use self storage. It's it's to address a challenge in their life. You know, it could be a timing issue. It could could be a, something that's happened with a family member. Um, and so it, it is a transition in type product, but the average stay of people in self-storage is three years. Hey, hold that thought for a minute. Do you have a client that needs to buy or sell a home in the DMV area? Then why not trust the highest selling team in the DMV, the Carrie Scholl team? We've helped thousands of buyers and sellers and would love to help your clients. And we guarantee we will save them time, money, and stress throughout the process, and they will be so grateful that you referred them to us. Go to carryshoal.com to learn more. Again, that's carryshoal.com 
to learn more about sending us your clients that need to buy or sell a home in the DMV area. That's carryshoal.com. Yeah, I, I would think over time it'll, it'll become more important just because I think, I think the cost to build houses is getting going up, the cost of land's going up, and people with people working from home more or schooling from home more, staying at home more, like they, they, they need more space in the home, um, which, you know, to, to use and live in and do things in. So you now I would, I would think they're only at, you know, they're only going to need more and more storage over time. Absolutely. I mean, during the pandemic, we've seen uh, a rise in the use of uh, self-storage. Um, you know, we've gone back and studied the last four major recessions and self-storage never dropped below 79% occupancy during any of the four recessions. In fact, it's, it's basically grown either horizontally or, or increased. Um, and since the pandemic, um, it has increased. The occupancy level within self-storage across the country has increased for the very reasons that you talk about. People are now schooling from home, they're exercising from home and they're working from home. Um, so they need different spaces. And the only way to do that is to remove some clutter. What's, what's the future for, for, for your company over the next 10 years and, and with the new brand and everything, where, where do you see it going and what, what are your big goals? Our goal has been to model this similarly to, you know, what others have done. In fact, I, I just listened to, we, I was at a conference, a small mastermind of other self-storage operators. We gather from across the country, there's 20 of us and we meet quarterly and we brought in one of the major players in self-storage and they talked about how they grew the, grew the product from a small family business into a $2.8 billion industry or, or company. And, um, you know, our, our goal has always been to develop a portfolio of these and then to be able to sell that off to a, a mid-level or larger REIT um, and get the cap compression. So that's, that's always been our goal and objective. So having one-stop self-storage helps us build that brand identity because it's not just one product now. Now we have seven facilities currently. Awesome. Well, that's exciting to see. I always like to uh, wrap up with the hyper fast round if you're ready for some rapid fire questions and answers. Absolutely. All right. What's your biggest piece of advice to a new investor? Do your due diligence and uh, learn who you're uh, working with. It's very important to have a good relationship. My mentor who um, won the whole racial award for distinguished Americans always talks about how uh, doing business is about relationships. And so that I would say that's the most important thing. What's one thing you see successful investors do that you think is a mistake? That's a hard one because of the fact that if they are successful, then why would it be a mistake, right? Um, I think that when, when they make an issue more complex than what it really needs to be, for instance, people will say to us, I don't understand self-storage, but I totally get multifamily. To me, it's like, well, if you understand multifamily, again, this is a dumbed down version of multifamily. So why would you not be able to understand it? So to me, I, I look for more of the commonalities as opposed to the reasons why I don't understand things. I, I try to look for reasons why I do understand things. What's the biggest challenge you've ever had in business and how did you overcome it? Uh, I had a bad relationship with a business partner, um, someone who, who uh, brought a different value set into the business. And, um, you know, it's something that seven years later, I'm still contending with. So that was the biggest challenge I had to face. And I wish I had done more due diligence 
and getting to know that person before I started doing business with them. What would we find you doing when you're not doing self-storage or, or business or the next development? Uh, I, I, you know, if it's during the summer, I'm definitely down at the beach. I, I live fairly close to Lake Michigan. And so I, I'm down there every day. Uh, I begin my morning down there uh, paddle boarding and, and having that nice quiet time out in the Lake Michigan. But that's something I do at least six to seven months of the year. Um, and so I'm, I, I'm outside enjoying doing things and, Hopefully I can be doing that with friends, whether, you know, going and experiencing, just doing new things with people. That's what I really enjoy doing. Awesome. Last one. Where do you see yourself 10 years from now? <laughs> we just had a company meeting about <laughs> this and uh, we all set out our five or one, five and 10 year goals. And, uh, you know, when I got back, my, my daughter said to my wife, does this mean that dad's buying the RV? <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> my, you know, I, 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 I you know, tongue in cheek, talk about having a Mercedes Sprinter RV that I could uh, drive around and go visit my grandchildren and, you know, and being able to do tailgates and stuff like that. And, you know, not necessarily go camping in, but having the flexibility and, and the comfort of just going around and, and um, experience different parts of the country. And, you know, I have no idea where my kids are going to be in 10 years, but that would give me a lot more flexibility. Well, they make a lot of, there's a lot of companies now that specialize in like, customizing those and, and doing some cool stuff you can there's even like a four by four version of it you can get that can do like off-roading and everything yeah you just don't tell my kids because <laughs> <laughs> but yeah those, those we um on one hockey trip we rented a 15 passenger sprinter mercedes sprinter and we put a bunch of families in there and we went from chicago to toronto and it was a great time we had a blast having everybody in the kid, you know, the kids in the back playing video games the whole way there and the dads in the front, just enjoying, you know, one another and the company. And it was a great trip. You know, it made, it made an eight hour journey, a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, before we sign off, if people want to learn more about what you do or connect with you or uh, learn how to partner with you in any way, how should they do that? Dan, I really appreciate that. But first, what I'd like to offer your listeners is if they reference the show and they email us, um, at info at coda, C-O-D-A-M-G.com. That's info at coda, M-G.com. And they want to learn more about self-storage. We will send them a feasibility report of a, a third-party report that we hired about a piece of property to determine whether or not it was a good location. And it's a 175-page report and it talks about self-storage. It talks about the industry. It talks about that location. It's just a very good tool to have. Uh, we will email that report to people if they uh, reference the show. And, um, you know, if they have questions about it, we, we feel, you know, we can set up a, a time to go through it. But that, that's the best way to get a hold of us is at info.codamg.com. And if they want to see our new website, One Stop Self Storage, that's all spelled out, onestopselfstorage.com. Um, they can see the facilities that we've been doing and what we're bringing online. And that, that report, I assume, if, or the feasibility study, I mean, that that'll give them a pretty detailed insight in, into how you guys look at a deal, evaluate it and, and all sorts of stuff, right? Absolutely. So when, you know, banks don't like just to believe us, they always like to get a third party evaluation and that's the feasibility report. So every time we go under contract, we're already ordering a feasibility report prior to going under contract to make sure that the location is good. And so, um, 
that report does do all the things that you're talking about. It talks about in general, what's happening across the board and self-storage from across the market, across the country. But then it would get whittles down into the numbers of that location. And it shows like one, two, three year projections and lease ups and all those sorts of things. So it, it gets down into the minutia as well. Awesome. Well, that's a generous offer. Thank you so much for making that. If you're listening or watching, take advantage of that. We'll put it in the show notes and description as well. And to all of our listeners and viewers out there, thank you for tuning in. I can't wait to see you next time. And thank you, Scott. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Hyperfat Show. Subscribe to us if you want to make sure you get the latest and greatest Hyperfat Shows. And remember, we love reviews. Reviews help us bring better and better guests and improve our shows. So give us the good, the bad, and the ugly. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we will see you next time. Hey guys, thanks for sticking around to the end. I hope you enjoyed that video, and if you want to see more, click right here. And if you want 100 real estate tips from my best-selling book, click right here to download them instantly. And if you're new to this channel, click below to subscribe and turn on post notifications so you don't miss out. And leave some comments about what you think on the videos.